Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is Wednesday, June the 6th, 2012. This is episode 916 of the Survival Podcast, and we have a cool one for you today. Hanging on the line, I have a gentleman named Anthony Veltri. Uh, I will tell you more about him in a bit. Just know that he worked with uh, the Department of Homeland Security during the Katrina disaster and many other disasters. He's the author of a new book called Katrina, A Journey of Hope. Uh, and I'm going to tell you toward the end of this housekeeping segment how you can get the Kindle edition for free for the next 48 hours. And uh, Anthony will be telling you that the MSB will be able to get the, uh, the, the book for free in PDF for in perpetuity. Uh, so he's really uh, he's, he's bringing something to the table, giving away his, his book. Uh, which is a great book. I've actually had a chance to read it in advance, and it's an awesome book, and I think you'll enjoy reading it. And I think you'll learn a lot about uh, technology and about what the government's doing during disasters and what the government's not capable of doing disasters. Anyway, uh, I will have Anthony on in just a second. Before I do, though, let me go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, Harvest Eating. Chef Keith Snow is an awesome guy, and he has an awesome website. Again, HarvestEating.com. We're going to teach you how to cook seasonally and locally so you can make the most out of all those gardens, the CSAs you're getting involved with, and other things like that. You know, if we're going to grow all this great food, if we're going to learn how to homestead, whether it's in an urban environment or a true uh, multi-acre homestead, whatever it is, we want to really make the most of it. We want to be able to preserve it. We want to be able to cook with it. We want our families to enjoy eating it, especially some of the stuff I talk about that you generally don't find on supermarket shelves. You wonder, what do I do with a giant Armenian cucumber? Hey, if you've ever wondered that, or if you wonder anything else that you've been growing, like what do I do with all this stuff, get over to HarvestEating.com, check out Keith Snow's stuff, and he will teach you how to cook seasonally and locally, and he will teach you how to make uh, cooking a skill set that will impact your life, because cooking is a life skill. I think we've lost that in America. It's something we need to regain it's a great way to save money, and I'll tell you what, during, a, during hard times when food's limited, the person that can cook is going to be a popular person, so check them out today. Uh, Harvest Eating, Chef Keith Snow, and by the way, Chef Keith is a prepper as well. He's part of our community. Next up today, Western Botanicals. You know, when I need something herbal and I can't find it in my garden or in my, uh, the woods around my home, uh, I go to westernbotanicals.com and go, gee, I wonder if they have this, and the answer is always yes. And when I go, you know what, I've got an issue, I'm dealing maybe with some headaches or something, and I need some help with this, and I pick the phone up and I call Dr. Christensen's team. Uh, they help me out and tell me what I need when I don't know. And then they send me the highest quality herbal supplements you'll find anywhere. They're all either organically grown or wildcrafted. Uh, the, the, what's available is amazing, but what really is the big thing to me is that I can call them and they'll help me. That, that's huge to me. And they'll talk to me, and they actually give a damn. And if the person who answers the phone isn't really sure how to handle our situation, they'll say, let me get Dr. Christensen back with you in a bit. And son of a gun, if a little while later the phone doesn't ring and it's not Kyle Christensen himself saying, hey, let me help you out. And he does just that, and he's been wonderful. And they also support the show big time because they have a program called their Discount Member Program, and that is $50 a year. And it is worth every penny because you get 25% off everything they sell. And if you use quite a bit of herbal stuff a year, that's going to pay for itself. But if you're a member of the support brigade, you get it for free for the first year. So that's $50 gone. And then if you like it and you think it's worth continuing to order from them and having it, when you renew uh, your second year, it doesn't cost you $50 to renew. It costs you $25. It's half price from then on. Uh, that's an awesome level of support. It pays for your membership for the support brigade in and of itself. 
That's just one of the great uh, assets that we have. And they've been a long-term sponsor of the show, and I don't think they're going anywhere. They really enjoy serving this community. So check them out today, westernbotanicals.com. Best way to visit Western Botanicals or Chef Keith Snow, though, is go to the Survival Podcast. Dot com and click on their banners in the right-hand margin. Somebody emailed me yesterday asked me, do you get kickbacks from those banners? No, I sell sponsorship on the show. I don't take any kickbacks from the MSB. I don't take any kickbacks from the sponsors. Uh, we do have a sponsorship program. It's very, very exclusive. Anybody that wants to know the rates, anybody that wants to know how we, how we police it, how we set it up, go to the site, click on Advertise. It's 100% transparent. We don't take kickbacks. Somebody asked me if I'd release a good deal yesterday or I wouldn't do it because it has kickbacks. And here's the deal. Uh, I don't think it's that great a deal, and I'm not going to release it because the person who sent it to me insulted me by insinuating that I would not do it because of kickbacks. So I'll try to find a couple good deals here and there for you guys that are not from our sponsors and let you know. I don't mind doing that at all, but I do take it as an insult when people send me crap like that. If you if you want somebody to help you out, try not insulting them in the email that you send them. Just a suggestion. Next up, remember, you can uh, check out tspcopper.com for some really cool copper medallions uh, showing your support of the Survival Podcast and the real truth about money or beekeeping or Ron or Rand Paul, the Second Amendment. It, you name it, there's some really cool stuff there. The stuff from uh, the Free Lacoste. Uh, stuff with the the the, the, the sitting bull, uh, just a beautiful coin. I had a guy email me yesterday. Said he's been paying his kids allowance in both cash and copper. And uh, when they want to buy junk at the store, he'll say, well, if you're out of money, you can cash in some of your copper. And he'll tell them how much money they get for their copper coins, and they won't do it. They won't give up their copper. I thought that was really cool. So check it out today, tspcopper.com. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You get a bunch of free ebooks, over $150 worth, including the new one that you'll hear about today, Katrina, Journey of Hope. Uh, and it's a great way to support the show at 18.3 cents an episode. Just click on Members at the website, and you will find it there at the survivalpodcast.com. All right, with that, uh, I do have the housekeeping wrapped up and I'm ready to bring on our special guest. Again, Anthony Veltri served as a lead physical scientist in charge of the Department of Homeland Security's ICAB Geospatial System and 24-7 Geospatial Mapping Production Center, which is charged with map production for a variety of natural and man-made incidents. In short, if it made the front page of CNN.com and it had the potential to impact the nation's critical infrastructure as a key resource, uh, chances are his team made geospatial products for it. He's a longtime listener to TSP Podcast and an avid lurker on the forum. He's also the author of Katrina, A Journey of Hope, which recounts his experience as a member of the Rhode Island Urban Search and Rescue Task Force during deployment to the Gulf Coast after Katrina in 2005. Uh, he's here today to talk to us about what being versatile can mean for you in a disaster situation, both during the disaster and long term what to expect and how to interact with emergency services personnel, his experience in the Gulf Coast after the landfall of Hurricane Katrina, uh, and how it can benefit you to learn from what he's seen. And he wants to make sure that other people have good information to keep themselves safe. He also wants to talk about his experience by working in the government and the, the, the career market that's out there for young graduates and, and people maybe that are taking a different path even than college today uh, to get a competitive edge in a very tough job market. So this is going to be a fascinating interview by a guy who has been there and done that on two kind of sort of different subjects but with some overlap in. I think it's going to be awesome and I really appreciate that he's given away his book to the MSB permanently and he's given away his book to everybody on Kindle. There will be a link in today's show notes. Everybody that can get up the Kindle version for the next 48 hours, absolutely free. If you do not have a Kindle, 
Download the app for your PC or your smartphone, and you can still get his Kindle version free among, you know, and also get other Kindle books if you choose to. Uh, and with all of that said, hey, Anthony, welcome to the Survival Podcast, man. Back, it's a pleasure to be here. Hey, well, uh, I'm glad to have you on. Your background is, uh, is pretty extensive. Um, you've, uh, you've worked with Department of Homeland Security, and uh, you were actually a lead physical scientist in charge of uh, the ICAB geospatial system. Can you tell us what that means? Because I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, sh sure, Jack. I sure can. So basically, uh, in my time at DHS, was part of my responsibility to make sure that the nation's critical infrastructure was protected. And so part of that was enabling our responders on the ground at the federal, state, and local level to be able to visualize that on a map. Think of like NCIS or CSI with the big giant screens that you know people look at and keep track of stuff. Not quite that cool, but almost to that level. So really exciting and really fulfilling because I was able to work from the responder level all the way up to, you know, the senior um, executives. So really exciting. And you spent a lot of time uh, on the ground with the Katrina disaster. Were there certain things that came out of that that, you know, like are still really heavily with you that uh, have made what you're doing part of why you're doing it now? Yeah, Jack, you know, that was that was such an experience. And it's, I mean, I will never forget, um, you know, I deployed down to the Gulf Coast originally with a communications restoration team, but I ended up actually, um, because of my EMT experience, working with an urban search and rescue task force. And, you know, it's really hard to imagine that if you wake up tomorrow, that the clothes on your back is everything that you own, you know. And unfortunately, for so many of our fellow citizens, after the landfall of Hurricane Katrina, That was their reality. I mean, can you imagine not knowing where your next meal is going to come from, where, you know, if you if you have kids, where you're going to stay that night? And I mean, it was just, um, you know, one of the worst things, I think, is to is to see a firefighter or a policeman not able to act in their capacity to to help someone. And it's just it's just horrible to see, you know, so many people impacted and not be able to provide immediate aid. Um, I'll never forget, um, it's actually a firefighter that I knew really well, and there's actually uh, a picture of him um, consoling a homeowner who had lost everything. And you can just tell he is so uncomfortable because he can't help. All he can do is listen to this guy, you know, and it was just... Um, I took so many lessons from that, and I think that that kind of motivated my future to try and bring that up to the next level, um, you know, to work for DHS. But what's really interesting um, is right after I returned to the Gulf Coast, from the Gulf Coast, originally I'm from Rhode Island. Um, I returned to Rhode Island, and uh, I got a call from the Rhode Island Emergency Management Agency about, I think it was sometime in October, Rhode Island had suffered some of the worst flooding in history at that time, and, and they needed some maps made to provide situational awareness for where potentially dams might break or that sort of thing. And uh, while I was actually at the emergency management agency 
making maps, um, the the business where I the location where I had my fledgling consultancy was actually flooded, and so here I am. The irony of this, I mean, you know, like when a you're, you're the guy that's supposed to predict the flood and the flood hit you. Yeah, you know, it's like it's <laughs> it's like a, a police officer getting his squad car stolen or a firefighter's house burning down, you know, and um, it was it was rough. It was really rough because here I was on this high from helping people, and uh, then I fall victim myself. And I'll tell you what, here's the crazy thing about it: the flooding was not actually the killer. It was the debt as a result of the flooding. That's that's what was the killer, and it's just you know the more I, the more I think about that, it's just, it's really one of those things uh, that that I just take with me. I I, I speak a little bit um, at the at the University of Oregon here, which is where I live now, um, on the topic of preparedness from a corporate and institutional standpoint, and uh, that's just one of the things that's really that's really amazing is that. Um, the, the premises that you teach about preparedness from the core of yourself extending out for the, you know, the, the, the likelihood of the event versus the potential impact, um, you know, until it actually happens to you, a lot of times you're blind to it. True. So, True. Yeah. So I think that one of the big things I'd like to have you speak about today, because um, I know we actually want to get into some other things, uh, but initially just with your experience from Katrina – is that I think a lot of people are like, well, if there's a disaster and I'm not dead, then people will show up and help me. And I think that there's a, that there is truth to that, but it's not quite that simple. And a lot of times there's like a long time of staging before rescuers can actually rescue. There's this old saying in search and rescue, dead rescuers save nobody, right? So they have to take the, the team safety into account as they move in to help. So what can people actually expect from federal and state response uh, crews during a disaster event? Well, that's, you know, that's a great question. And I think that my answer to your audience is going to be really different than my answer that I would give to the general public audience, simply because your audience is automatically at the graduate level if they've been listening to this show for any period of time. So I'm not going to tell them, you know, go to ready.gov and look into that sort of thing. What I think the most valuable thing for your your audience to realize is um, to familiarize themselves with the way that our nation is designed to respond to these large-scale um, events. Familiarize yourself with something called the National Incident Management System. You can go Google that. It's called NIMS for short. And it's basically the doctrine that the U.S. uses to coordinate for emergency preparedness and incident management. And um, the big takeaway from this is that if the, the best thing that you can do is get off the X. If you can get out of the area, then get out of the area. I mean, there's, some, there's, there's a saying, uh, you know, we, we prepare so we don't have to go to the Superdome. And... It's nice to know that government will be there to help you, but don't rely on it because the level of service that you're going to get is Superdome level service simply because they are, they are absolutely pressed to the max at that, uh, at that stage. And as you hinted at earlier, you know, if one responder goes down, 
then it's going to take two minimum to get him out. So these crews stage for something like a hurricane. A hurricane is what would be considered a notice event. You don't a hurricane doesn't just sneak up on you, you know, but there's other stuff like yeah, it's a pretty big yeah. telegraph punch, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, but there's other stuff that people need to be aware of like terrorist incidents where it, that's called a no notice event and you you don't have any notice of that. The best thing to do is get off the frickin' X and here's why. I know, you know, we talk about um oath keepers on this show and we talk about that that type of uh scenario or whatnot. You're you're getting different crews coming in from different parts of the nation. Um and they all have something special specialized that they're there to do. So if you wait if you are relying on them for help, number one, you don't know who you're going to get. Number two, you don't know how long it's going to take them to get there for you. And number three, you don't know either A, what they're going to have to offer you, or B, what they're going to want from you um, as a result of your interaction with them. So um, there's a great documentary done by the BBC. I think it's called uh, The Death of, of Yugoslavia. You can, you can check it out on on YouTube. And, uh, you know, I think the biggest thing you can do is study history of these events, understand what happened, understand why it happened, and then realize that you need to be adaptable because it's probably not going to repeat itself the same way next time. Um, very early on in, in the this, this show, I'm talking way back in 2008, I did a, an episode back when the show only probably ran about 25, 30 minutes uh, in my car. And it was called The Missed Lessons of Hurricane Katrina. And, and my premise there was that both the government and the people of this country missed a very important lesson about something like a Katrina, or if we go back into the 90s, the L.A. riots or Hurricane Andrew. And that is that that's how bad it was with the entire rest of the country going, man, let's help out, and being able to help out, and being to have safe areas staged on the outside, that if there was ever a national level, or even at, you know, we get into like a regional area disaster, that that luxury of the staging areas, the safety areas, the massive response would not exist. And if this is how bad it could be with that, it could be much worse without it. Do you feel that the government, based on your experience, has learned that lesson yet? They're getting there. They're, okay. defi- they're definitely getting there. But let me give you an, an instance of where I think um, a lot of work needs to be done. Um, when I worked at DHS, it was part of my responsibility to be ready to deploy to a location and be self-sustained for 30 days. Now, people think go-bag type stuff in that instance. But what... So many people, and I I lecture on this um, when I was at DHS, and I I continue to drive this point home, is that what so many people don't understand is that I am part of a system, and I am mission critical to somebody other than just DHS, and that is my family. And so if I don't prepare my family for me being gone for 30 days at the drop of a hat, then when I'm you know, in whatever location I'm in, 
trying to focus on recovering or, or rescue or recovery or whatever my mission is there, if it's a regional level event and my family's also impacted by that event, then guess where my mind is really going to be? It's going to be with my family. It's not going to be on what I'm supposed to be. And doing. your loyalty as well. And you wouldn't expect less of any man that his loyalty would be to his family first. Uh, no, no, you know, and, and, um, ignoring that is, I think, I, th- I believe that, that we're getting better. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that especially, you know, with the media pointing, with all this, like this doomsday prepper type stuff, it doesn't focus on the whole picture. They focus on the item. Like survival is not in the knife. It's not the survival knife because it's a knife. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I agree completely. Um, so that's what I try and drive home so much with um, with a lot of what I do now, and it's it's really um, I'm very passionate about it, and I, I really enjoy it. But that I think that is the critical thing is that if you're prepared at the lowest level, then you can scale it up. But if you're prepared at the highest level, it doesn't necessarily scale down. You brought it up, so I'll ask. My contention has been that these shows like Doomsday Bunkers and Doomsday Preppers, and God help us because they're so creative and they can only come up with one word on their own. They're about to come out with a new show that I got a casting request for that I will not put out because I will not humiliate my audience by suggesting they go on it called Doomsday Singles. Um, These shows like this, I've heard some people say, well, they're kind of nuts and they're sensationalistic and they're exploitative, but... They're just letting, at least getting people thinking in the right direction. My contention is they're actually doing more harm than good because they are focusing on the stuff and the things and the extreme versus practical preparedness for the common person, for the stuff they're most likely to deal with. How do you feel about these shows? Well, it's, it's interesting in the point that you put it out there, but I actually think that, for instance, your audience is – is so well-versed in, I mean, if you've listened to Jack Spirico for a year, you have like a graduate-level education on the subject of preparedness, in my opinion. And well, thank you. So, right, but, you know, it, it's, it's true, though. I mean, it really is. And so here's the difference, is if I just listen to you and I don't do anything, then it's entertainment. Sure. But you provide actionable stuff that can actually be... Um, acted on and, and, and I can do something. Whereas these shows don't provide, they are only for entertainment. You can't really act in a responsible way based on what you see. And so, um, well, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm going to go mortgage the house and put in a bunker, you know, I mean, yeah, you know, and it's, it's really, um, I mean, it's interesting from – there's the saying, you know, any publicity is good pub- publicity. And I think in this particular instance, that may be about 10% true. Yeah. But perception is really the reality of, of what, what the general public perceives. So um, your audience is in a very unique position to comport themselves in such a way that they can actually reverse that image. So one of my, you know, I'm very passionate about education and about learning, and I I continue to, um, when I like I said when I worked at DHS, basically any time something would make the front page of CNN, it was my team's responsibility to provide 
briefing products both up and down the chain. So I'm kind of a news junkie in that um, sense, and I really like to analyze things that I see. So, for instance, um, if if we take a look at how effective the Occupy movement is just from an effectiveness standpoint, I look at that and I say, what could they do to be more effective? And the first thing that comes out is put on some freaking khaki pants and a polo shirt. You know, because, yeah. <laughs> I yeah. mean, number one, it's for... Or at least take a shower. Yeah, right? I mean, <laughs> you know, so so I think that these shows provide your audience a real opportunity to think about how they're presenting themselves and how they could be more effective in spreading that message because the fire has been lit. And now it's just a matter of how that fire is used. Absolutely. So you actually wanted to talk about some other things from your experience, which is... A young person, uh, you know, specifically coming up in like emergency uh, emergency management uh, roles, but I think this stuff would apply anywhere. And it's a, a different lesson that you've learned. And like one of the things I've got in your notes here is you said that people that are that are coming into these professions absolutely need to be very flexible in their skill set. That sounds really applicable to day-to-day life for people with, with preparedness skills as well. But in the way you mean it there, how do you mean that, and, and why do you feel it's so important for people entering this market out of school to, to, to be skill set flexible as, as they pursue careers? Sure. Well, you know, it's really funny. I was listening to your episode 914 where you talk about the uh, the bubble, the 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 student loan debt bubble and kids who are graduating, who are in debt, but they don't actually graduate. And this just really uh, resonated with me in particular in this area because I was one of those kids who went to community college. I actually didn't go to my last year of high school. I just went straight to community college. And I think it cost me like 1500 bucks, you know, and I, I got to really um, – just figure out what I wanted to do for a very low cost. But here's the thing, and this is, this is just, it, it gets me because you talk to any five-year-old and you ask them, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they'll have an answer for you. And if I talk to a kid in high school even, and I say, what do you want to be good at as an adult? They're still on this, what do you want to be track? They, they, they associate a career with themselves. And we've seen the danger from 2008 on what happens when you associate your identity with a career. If I could just interject real quick to drive that point home. A person that says, I want to be an investment banker and went out and became the best investment banker they can be after 2008 was screwed. But if that person said, I want to be really good with money. Right, and I want to be really good with managing and controlling money. They would have a lot more options today if they tailored all of their skill set development around that instead of that over specialized sector. I think that's what you're saying. Anyway. Absolutely, absolutely. And 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 look at it from look at it from this perspective. You know, history repeats itself. So if we went back to 1975, and I said, "Gosh, you know, look at these awesome word processors. These are the latest and greatest technology." They cost about $30,000, you know, and I'm going to train to work on an IBM word processor. Yeah. Well, if I focus on this technology as opposed to providing value, then guess what? Ten years later, 
not only am I out of work, but the entire industry is gone. And I mean, IBM smart people, and they didn't yeah. see that coming. You yeah, know, you're right that, there with the typewriter repairman at that point. Right, right. Now, had I focused instead on other areas, cross-train, let's say I was in, interested in doing my word processing stuff, but I'm also interested in sales, then, you know, potentially I can, I can position myself to, to, to help make that transition to help those people who are now out of work and those companies who are transitioning from these big clunky word processors to something else. So just like you said there. Do you see people getting hit in the face in government positions because of that, like in the DOD, the DHS, things like that? In terms of their skill sets? Yeah, being like overly specialized, and if that goes south, they're done? Here's what happens, and this is, this is horrible, actually. So... Um, <laughs> And I think that this is true in any large organization that does not uh, keep abreast of technology. And so he, here's the thing. If you focus your career on chasing technology, you're going to have to run really fast. And you're going to have to be able to run faster as you get older because technology is increasing on an accelerating acceleration. Now, that being said, you know, still focus on being good uh, at technology but focus on providing value because here's what happens. If you get locked into a career and that organization does not update their technology with the state of the art, then a year from now, you're obsolete. Ten years from now, who knows? You know, and how many of your listeners out there are working with for companies whose computers are, you know, six or seven years old or whose database technologies are, ancient and decrepit, you know, and what does that mean yeah, for them? Yeah, if they have to go compete in, you know, in, quote, the real world, you know. Um, gosh, yeah, it's, it's really, it's one of those things where I think, um, I'll tell you what, so when, when I, like I said, when I was first in the Gulf Coast, I was working on communications restoration. Um, everybody, I was, we're all operating at it's what's called an emergency operation center. It's basically the nexus of all recovery operations for the particular county that I was serving in. And the Urban Search and Rescue Task Force was having some problems because the maps that it used to exist didn't reflect reality anymore. Because, I mean, some of these oh. houses had actually been floated upwards of a mile. And so it was their job to try and recover bodies that had, you know, of unfortunate individuals who had gone missing in that time. And so I had about 60 seconds worth of time to convey to the leader of this task force why GIS, the technology that I use, would help them not only be safer, but also be more efficient in their task. And so I think that one thing that so many people in the science and technical fields skip on that they need to focus on is sales and marketing. They need to be able to market themselves. They need to be able to very, very quickly describe what the value that they bring is. To sell their so, idea even within their own groups or with groups they're interacting with, even if they never have a quote-unquote sales job. Exactly. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think that that is, frankly, I think that we should be teaching children to do this uh, at minimum beginning in high school 
that we should actually have courses that teach individual self-marketing, self-promotion. Because if you think about it, we teach our kids exactly the opposite. Don't take money from strangers. Don't talk to strangers. When, when Aunt Sue tries to give you money, tell her no, right? So, uh, you know, be humble. And, and there's a place for some of this stuff, but then you take the same kid at 18 and say, go get admitted into a top college or go get your first job. And you've taught them, you know, not to take money from strangers, not to talk to strangers, not, you know, not to not to promote themselves, and or and even the kid trying to get a date, you know, is having a yeah. hard time because he doesn't understand how to say, here's the value that I bring to the table. And, and I think that, you know, if you want to know part of what makes the college graduate earn more, I think they get a little bit of that there. And sometimes this this earnings discrepancy thing is more about being able to promote yourself than anything else. I. I think it's a huge hole uh, that we're leaving in, in our kids is, is the not having the haggle nature, the communications, the, the capability to say, this is why I think we should do things this way. Because great ideas get buried in big organizations because the person that had it can't convey how it works. I, I agree. And, and here, so here's another point that I think that sort of the more – so my wife um, – She's a, a bush doctor. She goes – that didn't come out the right way, but she's an Alaska bush doctor. She goes and travels to these remote villages in Alaska and provides medical service to the kids there um, who are – you know have dis- developmental di- di- disability or something of that nature. But she is so – at first, she was averse to the concept of sales, self-promotion, because I think especially – the more technical you are, the more science-based you are, the more you are trained that you have to present facts and that sales is something that's bad. And it's, it's, so, you know, it's so humorous when I, I go into these meetings sometimes and I say, you know, we really need to learn how to promote this idea. And it's looked at like promotion, marketing. That's not – we are a science organization. We don't do that. And I'm like, well, okay then. <laughs> have a nice day. Well, and it's so sad because you, you, you see, like, what is one of the biggest things that scientists have to do when you get into true science, where like, like exploratory developmental science, once they come up with a theory and, and they, they've tested it out, proven it out mathematically or mechanically, they have to then go present it to their peers. And they say, well, we don't want to be in sales. Well, there's nothing that's harder to sell than an old scientist on a new idea. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's, it's this, it's, you know, and, and that's just it. By nature, innovation goes against the status quo, and your ability to convince the, stat- the people that your idea is better than the status quo is promotion and sales and marketing. You know, it's just um, it's just fascinating that that we've we've trained our our culture to think in a way that's contrary to that. And I'll give this example. Um, I, I have this sort of amateur theory that the better you did in kindergarten, the more difficult of a time you have in um, promoting yourself and looking out for yourself. Here's what I mean by that. So in kindergarten, you have a teacher who tells you when to take a nap, tells you when to go eat lunch, and their job is to promote you on to the next grade. And that goes on through elementary school, it goes on through high school, where maybe you have a guidance counselor whose job it is to get you either into a trade or into college or something of that nature. Then you get into college, and there, you know, there's a little bit less direction, 
But where the disconnect happens is when you get into the workforce, because now you've had this authority figure throughout your entire life who's a teacher or a guidance counselor or a college professor who is now your manager. But what so many people don't understand is that the manager's primary job is not to promote you. It's to make sure that he gets whatever widget or service that he needs out. And so promoting you is secondary. Helping you grow is secondary to the primary task. But if you grow up with that mindset, then, you know, you're kind of like, well, I'm just going to wait for the manager to promote me because that's what I've done for up until this point. Not to mention the manager has no interest in promoting his best people out of his group into somebody else's group or (laughs) up to a parallel position because I don't have you anymore. Now I have to roll the dice on what kind of dimwit I'm going to get. You know, the old Dilbert principle is you give the best reviews to the worst employees and you give good reviews to the great employees so that when another department wants to steal somebody, they steal the people you don't really want. And um, this is kind of an aside. I don't know if you know this, but uh, the the guy that does Dilbert, I can't think, Scott Adams, I think is his name, came out of HP. And Dilbert paraphernalia is is forbidden at HP (laughs) because it's too close to home. (laughs) <laughs> because they're like, you know, that's a little too close. Yeah, we don't want that stuff around here. And it's 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 sad. And, yeah, you're, I mean, why would your manager want to get you promoted unless, you know, and this is, I think, why military personnel excel uh, in the corporate world when they, when they bring the concepts forward with them. Yes, I want the most out of my squad, but, damn it, I'll eat last. My squad eats first. And I don't think you get that pretty much anywhere else. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's one of those things where I think um, it's important for people to recognize that. And it's, it's just it's important for our culture as we progress forward to really start to take control of themselves as individuals and understand that while the teacher or while your manager, while it may be one of their performance metrics to make sure you get training and make sure you get whatever, it's up to you to make sure that you get that. You are responsible for where you're, where you're going and where you're headed. And I think we have, we have um, delegated that responsibility to other people. And it's frightening. You know, I, I first learned about the concept of duty and obligation when I became an EMT because there's a whole lecture on the concept of duty and obligation. And in there, they said, look, if you are, um, if you are potentially in danger, then you don't have to go put yourself in harm's way to save somebody. And then they talked about how that applies to, um, to law enforcement as well. And that really made something click in my head where I said, whoa. So even if I call 911, if they're going to potentially die coming to save me, then I, I could I could die even though I called nine one one and something just clicked and I you know I mean this is like ten years ago and I just realized whoa I have got to be responsible for myself and I ha- I have to make sure that I'm taken care of because ultimately I'm the captain of this ship. Yeah, and I mean to be fair, there are police that that, that scramble through a hail of bullets to help somebody. There are firefighters who go into the burning building, but they're not. I think that's something a lot of people aren't aware of. They're not required to. Um, a soldier told take the building is required to. 
right? But but a cop is not required to. They they make that choice to go or not to go, and when situations get bad enough, they may make the choice not to go. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think that that. I mean, your audience aside, I don't think that the general public realizes um, the implications of that. They think that they call nine one one and there's going to be somebody who comes in, you know, hell or high water, and that that is not legally. Okay, there's a difference, of course, between legally and morally, but legally, sure. that's that's the case. There was a guy like a year or two ago that was having chest pains during a major ice storm and snowstorm, and the emergency responders were able to get within about 200 feet of his house. And they said, we're here. This is as close as we can get. You guys got to come to us. And they, and they were like, no, we're taxpayers. You have to – and the guy died. You know, and and they probably could have gotten him to these responders had they made the attempt. Um, you know, snow on the ground. If nothing else, you could throw them on something and drag them. Uh, but but the people believed that it, they were entitled to this response, and I think it's exactly what you're kind of honing in on there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, this concept is, you would be shocked at the gasps that I get. In some university audiences, when I when I say this and I reveal this to them, and I actually have the PowerPoint slide that has like references underneath it because they actually call me out on it and they don't believe me. Yeah, and it's just it's really shocking to me that um, number one, the concept of of duty and responsibility and obligation is not taught in high school generally um, to everybody. You know, it's one of those things where. It just doesn't. It we need we need to pay more attention to the concept that you're the captain of your own ship. Yeah, I completely agree. On, on that note, in your notes here, you have that if uh, someone coming up in like the uh, the federal government world uh, that wants to get that fed government job, if they take a university internship, uh, it might be an easy way to get hired, but a horrible way to get ahead. Uh, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so here's the thing, and I think that this stands true with a lot of internships that may have a guaranteed conversion at the end of the, the commitment to the internship, either with a large corporation or with, uh, you know, federal, state, local government. What happens is if you sign on to that internship and it converts into a full-time job, then you need to be aware of what your promotion potential is within that particular job that you've signed up for. Now, speaking from my last job um, at, at DHS, there were individuals who had more training and higher degrees than me, but because they came in under an internship, they were tagged as this is your career track, and it's once you're tagged like that, it's really hard to distinguish yourself and get out of that track. And so so it's, I, type, it's like typecasting. Like it's like what's uh, you know like what's the guy from uh, Different Strokes, a little black kid, uh, Gary Coleman, trying to get a job <laughs> after that, right? That's that's who he is forever. Pretty much, pretty much. And and so um, you know I can understand in this economy. Look, if you have a, an offer of guaranteed employment, it's it's hard to turn down. But what I'd like to propose right now to you know your listeners is an option that is really I I think one of the best ways if you are a dedicated and motivated person who is intent on providing value, then one of the best ways that you can really accelerate yourself if you want to go into like a federal or state government career is to find a contractor who services that 
entity. So, for example, take the DOD. You end up working as a con- for a contract firm somewhere. Um, you provide massive value to them. Let's say you're doing IT or something like that, and you become you provide so much value, and you're so personable that you transform somewhere from an employee into a trusted advisor. And so what happens in that instance is, number one, it's really hard to stay hidden if you're doing that good of a job. And so either you're going to be plucked off by another contract firm or you're going to be put in charge of more and more stuff. And so from that position, it's a lot easier to apply for a federal government job that is at a much higher level than if you had just gone in straight out of university. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's a lot of people who have taken that path in a variety of things. I know uh, one of my best friends from the Army, he went and got a degree in information technology, and he got a job as a contractor working for uh, a hospital. Uh, and it was pretty low-end job compared to his education. It was a job that you could have probably hired somebody off the street and gave them two weeks of training and they could have done, but he ended up as the IT department head of the hospital because he was in there with that education and that ability to work with people, integrate with people. And when something came available, you know, there's a guy right here that can just step in and do the job tomorrow. He's already here. He's been here, you know, contracting with us for nine months. We absolutely know he'll show up, so hire him. Well, then once he got in that organization, he was already, like you're saying, a couple ladders ahead of an entry-level position in that organization. So moving up from there, it's kind of – in a lot of these organizations, too – Low-level people, it's okay to stay there. They don't care if you stay there. But there's a certain point that you reach where you're kind of pushed up. Like, okay, once you've gotten here, buddy, you better be advancing your career. And breaking that threshold is very difficult sometimes from the bottom. Yeah, it, it, it really is. And it's, um, it's, it's hard to get noticed, and it's hard to set yourself apart. And um, I have... Uh, a buddy in, in Hawaii, actually, who is not even finished with his online degree yet, but because he did such, I mean, and this guy, he was set up. He had a federal government job, Kush. He could have just retired, you know, 30 years from now, but he's driven. He's motivated, and because the contract firm knew that he could do the job, they gave him a, a project manager position that is paying ridiculously well for someone who's 25 years old who hasn't even finished his degree yet. And I, I can tell you what, they're not paying him for the degree. They're paying him because of, number one, his ability to uh, perform. Number two, his ability to be personable and keep the customer satisfied. And number three, because he, he's a known known. They know what they're getting. It's not the degree in that instance. And I think this is like another thing, it's kind of off the disaster in the government sector discussion, but I think this is what a lot of people that are in their 30s and 40s today don't realize. That's who you're competing with. When You've lost your job during this recession, you're trying to get another job, and you really have to reinvent yourself because that 25-year-old is inventing himself for the first time. So when you're going back in and you're saying, well, I've done this my whole life and, and I want to do it again and keep doing it, you're almost, an, you know, the, the, with speed things move at today, you're like an also-ran, where if you reinvent yourself, then that experience has, like, massive value that that experience is back there, but you have to re-present it, retool how you're presenting it, because it, as a guy that's run companies, I'm telling you right now, the 25-year-old that's kicking ass and taking names, 
I'll take him over the experienced 40-year-old who's, who's set in their ways any day because I know that I'm going to get 10 years of ass-kicking out of this kid. You know, I know he's going to do it. And I know if I say, look, I need you to – if I go, I need you to learn how to fill in the blank, right? And I need you to do that in the next two weeks, and here's a whole bunch of freaking information. Go do it. Two weeks later, he's going to be able to do it better than I can. And that's – when I'm running a department, running a company, that's what I'm looking for in a person. Now, here, here's another example of, of where I think we're going as we progress forward in time. Like you said, the 30 or 40-somethings who are potentially um, out of work or whatever, this is, this is what they're coming up against. They're coming up against either the kid who did the internship or um, I, I talked to somebody recently who was like saying, oh, should I do an internship or what do you think I should do? And I said, look, I know that you're really passionate about this map making technology and I know that you're really passionate about fire why don't you go find a local fire department who's having problems with their dispatch maps because what local fire department isn't number one underfunded and number two having problems with dispatch routing sure and go show go set up a meeting with the chief show them what you can do and make them a new series of dispatch maps number one you're going to show that you have a complete control in, in, of what you're talking about. Number two, you're going to show that you have initiative to go talk to somebody and sell them on what it is that you can provide. And number three, you're actually going to deliver the services. Now, speaking from just me personally, not me you know, working for any other agency or whatnot, but if I get some kid who did an internship, which can be very challenging but generally has sideboards that are put on it, versus somebody who demonstrated that they approached somebody, showed them what they could do, and did it, I'm going to choose the second guy. Yeah, I mean, dealing with smaller departments, think of being able to put on a resume, develop the dispatch maps uh, for, you know, fire department dispatch for, you know, three small cities. I mean, that, that's to me, that means more than I was in an intern program, and they told me I'll do all this crap, and then I did it. You know, yeah. I did what they said, and, and I got patted on the head and told I was a good boy. Because this is real-world application without supervision, right? That guy has to goes out and does that. He may not make any money doing it because it's an internship, basically. It's like a self-directed internship. But he had to be completely self-directed during the entire thing. Exactly. And and you know, and that goes into what um, what the piece on Dmitry Orlov, where he was saying about the potential for what's going to happen to America. That second individual is going to be much better positioned to do his own, you know, business that's not, you know, really a growing concern, but is sort of just, hey, I have this skill, I can provide it if I need to. Yeah, I think one thing that people struggle with, even in this audience, is that unless we have the true, you know, comet hitting the earth or something like that, the, the, the concept that there'll be no economy left, that there'll be, you know, everything will be in complete disarray, every bridge will fall down, you know, that there'll be nothing, and there won't be any kind of economy left to work within except beans, bullets, and band-aids, it's just not likely. Um, when we look at these other places that have experienced collapse, we get a very dark picture, but with anything, there's opportunity if you know, which, if you know how to deliver value. And I think people need to be prepared to exist after the disaster with certain caveats, much as they're existing today. In other words, there's going to be bills to pay. 
There's going to be, you know, you're not going to grow all your own food likely. You're going to have to work with other people. You're going to have to have a skill set. You're going to have to be part of a community. It's not like it's the, like some people think it's going to be like, well, the end is actually like, you know, a good thing for them because they're prepared to live for two years on their own and, and they'll just, they'll just go it alone. I just don't think that's realistic. Well, here's the thing. So I'll give it an experience from the Gulf Coast after Hurricane Katrina. That was, you know, a regional event. Huge. I remember as we were driving down there, uh, as we crossed into Mississippi um, from, I forget what state we crossed into, but it was 200 miles from the coast, and there was tornado damage. So huge regional extent. And we got down there, and there are areas that are very, very hard hit, and then there are areas that are not as hard hit. So one of the things I would say to your audience, and I think that shows like Doomsday Preppers are really bad for this, is that romanticism idea is really bad about, about how, oh, it's going to be like this or it's going to be like that. Because look, if I want to find areas that are really bad, I can find them. And if I have the resources to get off the X and go somewhere else, it might not even be that far away, it, it, things might be a ton better. So yeah, there, there may be enclaves where there has to be trading with beans, bullets, and band-aids, as you said. But uh, I think that from my personal experience anyway, go a couple miles and it's not going to be the same way. Yeah, I'll just put it this way. It's going to be a cold day in hell before my Bank of America doesn't expect the mortgage payment. <laughs> it, it really is. I mean, it's just it's not realistic to think that way. The, the biggest thing that I think could actually cripple the globe to its knees, and even this would eventually have a rebuilding, would be a global high lethality, high uh, spread rate pandemic. I, that scares the shit out of me way more than an economic collapse. There's been tons of economic collapses, and, and, and you know people have a desire to do business, to have commerce, and people figure out a way to, to, to rebound from that. Um, diseases don't give a damn. They don't care if you're rich. They don't care what your race is. They don't care about your religion. They just kill. And so that is is the big one. And unfortunately, we've we've dodged that bullet for a long time. But to me, that is when you look at the grand scale. Uh, that's the big threat that 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 I have the most amount of uh, of fear that someday could become realized. And even more than that is the social ostracism effect that would result from oh, yeah. a pandemic versus, like for instance, um, an ash cloud from some. Uh, volcano or something like mm-hmm. that. Yeah, th- that is. We'll just pick. We'll just fix it, right? And anybody that's anywhere safe can say, "We'll stay here and we'll fix it." If there's a pandemic, you know, I remember back when the remember the swine flu scare. It was just so ridiculous. I and sure do. <laughs> every freaking politician came on and told us to wash our hands and sneeze in our sleeve and and what have you. So what I got in the habit of doing because I just liked messing with people is like I'd walk into a Starbucks or something and I'd go. <coughs> And you should see that people turn around in horror. And like, you know, it's like, what? And you wonder, okay, what if this was real? Right? What if this wasn't the bullshit that the media has made out of it? What if this was real? Um, it, nobody's coming to help because everybody's afraid that you're the sick one. Yeah. And, and then you get economic collapse. And pay. There is no such thing as a global pandemic without an economic collapse to go with it. You, you, you get both if you get that one. Yeah, what's interesting for me about uh, that swine flu thing was um, the World Health Organization went to level six of their pandemic chart, 
you know, warning scale or whatever. And yeah. there, it, there, there, there was actually nothing above level six. So, you know, my question That's is... That's like DEFCON 1 during the Cold War then, yeah, right? Yeah. It, it renormalizes itself to be, that's like, you know, 10 is now 1. Huh. So. It's insane. That's absolutely insane. So um, you do a lot of teaching, and you've actually started teaching uh, topics of preparedness and things associated with, with, with collapse to associates and colleagues, and you're using the same kind of formula you do for uh, triage of mass casualty incidents. How, how, does, how does that work out? What kind of a system have you developed there? Well, so the thing about mass casualty incident, just to define it for your audience, is some incident where um, the crews responding to it are simply overwhelmed. They're not able to handle it. So think something like 9-11 or a train crash or something of that nature. And when I was training to be an EMT, we, you know, we go through, we do the, the CPR, the airway management, all the other sorts of stuff like that. And then at the end, there's an add-on module called mass casualty incident. And so what, what generally, you know, mass casualty triage is incident, somebody rolls up on the scene, sees all these, you know, people sprawled out, shouts out, hey, anybody who can, who can get your ass out of here, stand up and come with me. So those are like the walking wounded. Those are the people who can get themselves out of the area. And from there, you know, there's more assessment that's done on people who are, who are um, impaired in various ways. And so there's a tagging system. That, and and, and they're, they're actually tagged on, on the bodies with, with a green tag, uh, a yellow tag, a red tag, or a black tag. And the black tag means that you are... Um, not expected to go much further than you are right there, but you might not be dead. And <laughs> one of the, one of the things that 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 I mean, so you got to remember, I had been. It, it used to be like put, drive the home. How bad that is for you to everybody else. That means for a, a responder, unless everybody else with every other tag in that area is gone and taken care of, don't mess with that guy. Let him go. Exactly, and it, it was because you got to remember, Jack. I had just trained to save people like that on a one-on-one -on -one basis. If that person was there and he was the only person there, he'd be getting my 100% undivided attention. So now my mindset has to change like this. And I have to say, you know what? This person is still savable under my old protocol. But you know what? I, I have to move on. I can't help anymore. Yeah. So that was really, that was really uh, a moment there for me. And so how I utilize this now is I understand, and it's very painful, and I imagine for a lot of your audience it's painful too, but there's just some, some people that you, who are black tagged in terms of being able to be reached for, hey, you know, you should probably consider taking a little bit more control of your life and um, consider, you know, I know you, you eat out every day and you don't have any food in the house, and then, they, you know, they just, they're a black tag, you know. If oh, yeah, so what? <laughs> They're the kitchenistas, right? I don't know if you remember that episode. The kitchenistas. They, I do. They keep they keep their clothing in their oven in their refrigerator in New York City because they don't have room for their clothes, so they have no food at all in the house. They're black tagged. You can't help. I can't I can't help them? You know, someone someone might be able to, but I, but I can't. And so once I adopted that mindset, I realized that hey, you know what? Um, I have to focus my energy on those who I actually can help. 
and those who I can reach. And I, what, so what makes me really happy is that um, corporate America is actually not in the black tag um, area. So what I'm focusing on now is not just you know helping people to be prepared, but also helping corporations to be prepared because that way I can focus on not just saving lives but saving livelihoods by helping corporations to understand, hey, you know what? We should probably have some off-site backups here, and we should probably consider this, that, and the other thing. Um, it, it, it's, I wouldn't say that they're green tagged, but they're certainly not black, which is, I think, very um, a very good thing. I've found you can reach corporate people with a simple statement. You have a fiduciary responsibility to your shareholders to ensure the operation of your business even when something goes wrong. Because that's in their language. They, 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 oh, yeah, I, yeah, okay, I get that, right? Because the business has a fiduciary responsibility to every stakeholder in that business. That's part of their, their, their job as an existing corporation is to ensure the safety of the investment. Pretty much. That's, that's what it, that's what it boils down to, you know, and, and I mean, you want to protect the people too, but the corp, you have to have different language to speak with different, uh, Different different entities, and then from there, what do you, see? you maybe see some other people with some other tags? I mean, other people that have like the, the like the the green tag, where like we're gonna be able to get these people. Like these are the people to focus on. So this is where your audience is so critical because how your your audience is perfectly positioned to you know to be the proverbial doctor in a time of plague. And they have the skill set and they have the knowledge. Um, but, for example, let's take the – I know that you talked about a guy who was concerned about what he should do with his 100 pounds of potatoes because he was scared that you know somebody was going to come rob him if he gave them away or something like that. Now, that guy probably has such a body of knowledge about preparedness in his head, but because of the way he comports himself and he handles himself, he does not come off as someone who could convey that knowledge to other people. So I would challenge your audience to become more effective in conveying the knowledge that they have so that they can be the doctor in the time of plague and they can, you know, help be more effective in, in, in handling this triage. Yeah, and I mean, when people start saying things like, well, you know, I don't want everybody coming to my door if we're in a situation, you know, like a the one-year scenario, the big, giant disaster, and I'm like, that's not even what you should be talking to a person who's not, <laughs> who's not, who's not yet preparing about anyway, even if we take away the fear that they'll all, you know, like the 10 different families you talk to will all show up at your door, that's, you're not going to reach them talking that way. They're so cocooned with normalcy bias, that if you start talking about needing a year of food stored up and telling them you have that to a person who has not really done much of anything yet, you, you might as well just punch them in the face and say, why don't you listen to me? You're going to get the same results. They're going to push back. Because that person you need to be talking about a blackout kit, a basic three-day kit, a, a garden, a community development, debt reduction. That's what you, and, and people say, why do you spend so much time on that? Because well, that's how you freaking reach people. That's how I get you into the world of, of total preparedness is to start out with the things that we all should be doing anyway. Absolutely. 
So you actually put all of your experiences with these disasters into a book. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, Jack. Uh, so basically, I, I published a book on Amazon Kindle, and it's called Hurricane Katrina, A Journey of Hope. And you can find that on either a journeyofhope.info or uh, just go to Amazon and, and Google for that. But what, what I realized as a result of this is um, I've gotten a lot of questions where people ask me specifically about uh, transforming the skills that they presently have to become more robust in being able to get work, find work, and distinguish themselves, you know, basically stand out. And so um, I put together a site called distinguishedgraduate.com, and it basically um, breaks down how you can be more effective in getting your message across. So, for example, I realized that really what, what I do best is help early and mid-career employees figure out what their frickin' passion and what their skills really are and give them a way to leverage that so they stand out above their contemporaries and are able to take control of their life. Um, and, you know, I love working with, with senior management. I love working with people on the ground. I love making that connection. But I really realized that one of the things that I'm best at is helping the person who I was 10 years ago get to where I am now. Very cool. And that's distinguishedgraduate.com? That's right. Okay. And on the book, though, um, what, what's your book basically about? So, A Journey of Hope is details the story of the Rhode Island Urban Search and Rescue Task Force during its deployment to the Gulf Coast after Hurricane Katrina. And it's a great sort of uh, coffee table style book. It's on Kindle right now. I think that the best value of the book, that the, the message that it drives home the most is something that you can show to someone who is potentially not on the same level of mindset as you and say, my gosh, look at this. That doesn't look like a lot of fun, does it? Maybe we should talk about what we would do if we were in this circumstance. Because I, I can tell you, I don't think I'd want to be in that shelter. Do you, honey? Um, it also shows the, um, the inherent vulnerabilities of the people who come to save you. So what a lot of people don't realize is that these highly specialized urban search and rescue task forces, and these are the guys who, like, really got popular after 9-11 because they're, they're tooled up to cut through reinforced steel and concrete and rescue you from that sort of structure. The, these guys are uh, volunteer teams. This isn't their full-time job, most of these teams. And so if you have the mindset that you dial 911 and somebody's paid to come save you, you don't realize that these super specialized teams are actually mostly volunteer. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, so um, it's, it's, you know, for your audience, um, I think that the biggest value is in sharing with other people. Now, you offered to do something that I think is really cool for members of the support brigade with your book. You want to tell folks what that is? Yeah, absolutely, Jack. So I, um, I made a commitment, Jack, that I would, um, that no member of your member support brigade would ever have to pay for this book. So I've provided you with a special uh, PDF version 
that you can uh, offer in perpetuity in uh, within the MSB. Well, I, I I thank you tremendously because I know as an author, it's you know one of your one of your main sources of income. So it's certainly appreciated that you've you've made that available. And I will by the time this airs, folks, if you're MSB and you go to uh, the support brigade and log in to your private area, you'll find it under the on the download page. And uh, Anthony, thank you so much for, for for donating this. It's a it's awesome. Hey Jack, it's been uh, it's been a real pleasure, and uh, yeah, I, it, I just want to spread spread the message, you know, and that's the best way I can do it. And just a little bit more on your uh, distinguished graduate. So I'm there right now. You didn't have it in your notes when we originally set up the uh, the interview, but it's uh, it's set up as a blog. So you're doing a lot of posting uh, with with help for people, and I guess they can contact you there as well. They can contact me there as well, and I, I actually, um, my wife has um, been working really hard with me to actually come up with a process by which folks who are sort of fig- trying to figure out what the heck am I good at, um, well, my wife and I are dedicated to helping those people figure it out because we do that. I mean, we get phone calls all the time from our friends and colleagues, hey, how should I approach this interview, or how should I go about leveraging this skill and so we're actually putting together an ebook that will be up um, shortly and um, I'll make sure that there's a coupon code for um, your your audience as well with that oh that's awesome man thank you well hey I appreciate you taking the time to be with us here today and uh, sharing all your experience and knowledge it's uh, it's a better show than I initially had expected I thought what well, we talked about Katrina and disaster preparedness but we did that uh, plus helping people figure out how to how to live their better lives from a day-to-day standpoint, you know, right now, whether it be with government employment or dealing with college. So uh, one of the most diverse and informative interviews I've ever done, Anthony. Thank you for being with us today. Hey, it's my pleasure, Jack. Thank you so much for all that you do. And folks, with that, this has been Jack Spirico today along with Anthony Veltri, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
Show.